We are continuing our series that we started last Sunday called Grow, and the reason we picked such a simple topic and name for this series is because we often ask ourselves, when we come to church, we hear about big ideas and big truths about God. We hear about the sovereignty of God. We hear about the love of God and the holiness of God. We sing about these big ideas about God. Even coming out of our last sermon series, we dealt with some pretty heavy topics in thinking about the kingdom of God, our place in the upside-down kingdom. And for just three weeks, I wanted us just to think for a moment, what does it mean for these incredible truths about God to flesh themselves out in every aspect of our lives? When we think about growing with this God, growing with this God that is loving and sovereign and holy and perfect and set apart, what does that really mean for for me, and how does that apply to every facet of life? Last week, I mentioned that verse in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation. Paul doesn't say, work for your salvation. We know that there is one that has worked for our salvation, that is Jesus Christ. But in light of the salvation that was purchased for us on behalf of Jesus Christ, we are now called to work out this salvation. How does the reality of God's salvation in Christ affect affect every aspect of life? How does it affect the way I think and the way I make decisions, the way I parent, the way I interact with my spouse, the business decisions I make, the way I spend my treasure, the way I spend my money? Every facet of life needs this salvation is worked out. And so for this week, last week we looked at Psalm chapter 1. What does it mean to grow through meditating on God's word both day and night? I want us to look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 32 through 49. Continuing this journey, how do we grow and actually set free through a life of obedience? The two things that the culture says are opposed to each other, freedom and obedience. I either can be free or I have to obey. And what Psalm 119 says is that ultimate freedom, the freedom you long for and crave, is actually found in an obedient relationship to God. Psalm 119, verse 32 through 49. I will run in the ways of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in all your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and in your righteousness give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, and I trust in your, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will speak of your... I, also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame for I find my delight in your commandments which I love 
I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember your word, your servant, in which you have made me hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, gives a great definition of obedience to God. John Calvin says, obedience is coming under the gracious authority of God. Pretty simple, huh? Obedience is coming under the gracious authority of God. Uh, The problem is the idea of obedience, the idea of coming under the gracious authority of God flies in the face of common culture, common culture that says that your goal and my goal is ultimate freedom, and the way we define freedom is living our lives in such a way in which nothing restricts us. Getting to that place in life where there are no restrictions, that is the goal, and that is freedom. So when we have this idea of obedience falling under the gracious authority of anyone, it flies in the face of common culture. Because the goal of life, we are told from the world and culture, is to find a life in which there no restrictions exist. That is the ultimate goal of life. That is the ultimate goal of freedom. When you talk to most people, what do they say? They say, it's okay for you to believe what you believe and okay for me to believe what I believe, but as long as you don't tell me that there is some ultimate authority in which I must live my life, especially when it comes to the message of Christianity, the idea of submitting my life to an external spiritual authority seems absolutely crazy in the 21st century. Me and me alone, my heart and my heart alone determines what is right and wrong. Me and me alone, I decide what is good for me and what is wrong for me and what is bad for me. I will decide on my terms, in my timing, what works for me, in my circumstances, all of the decisions of life. There will never be an external spiritual authority that governs my decisions or governs right from wrong. But here in Psalm 119, we see what seems to be impossible. We see a life that has been called out by God, the psalmist writing Psalm 119. And it's a life that is longing to live in obedience to God. It is a life that is longing to live according to the statutes and the ways and the law of God. But at the same time, it is a life marked by utter freedom and utter delight, and utter joy. You see, the psalmist here in 119 shows us the picture of what the world says is impossible, that you can be obedient to God and obedient to the statutes of God, but live in utter freedom and delight at the same time. So let's dive into Psalm 119 together. Psalm 119, in the context of understanding what it means to grow in our relationship to God and live in obedience to him, uh, one of the first things that I want us to see in the passage that we read this morning is found in verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. First takeaway from this morning is that you and your growing in your relationship with God and living in obedience to God, the first thing we have to remember is we have to honestly acknowledge that our heart is always captured by something. 
We have to have an honest acknowledgement that your heart is always captured by something. From the moment you were conceived, your heart was never morally neutral. Your heart was always captured and always lived under the authority of someone or something. That's why the psalmist in verse 37 doesn't say, now that I'm a child of God, now I'm just going to simply turn my eyes towards God and turn my eyes towards the ways of God. No, what does he say? The psalmist captured by God and as a child of God pleads with God for help. What does he say? Turn my eyes because my eyes and my heart and my affections were, have been captured by worthless things. The heart is never neutral. Our authority is never neutral. We always live in, in submission to someone or something. And the word here in verse 37 for worthless things is the same word that Jonah uses in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8. But the word he transla- that is translated for us in Jonah 2.8 is idols. It's the same word. So what the psalmist is saying in verse 37 is, turn my eyes away from idols. Turn my eyes away for, from things that are smaller than God, that capture my affections and capture my worship and capture my heart. The first step in obedience, the first step in growing in our relationship with God is acknowledging that your heart right now is captured by something or someone. You'll never be able to grow until you realize that your heart and your affections live under the authority of someone or something. And whatever that thing is, is controlling you. Euripides, the great Greek writer, said, no one is completely free. If you live for work, you're enslaved to work. If you live to please people, you will forever be enslaved to the people that you are trying to please. You're either under the controlling authority of someone or something of this world or under the controlling authority and submission of God and God himself. You are not your own. Never have been, never will be. The only question is, whose authority do you live your life under? The authority of yourself and of this world or the authority of God? First thing we have to acknowledge in this process of growing and working out our salvation, acknowledging that your heart is captured by someone or something. The second takeaway we get from this uh, passage, Psalm 119, is found in verse 45. It says, I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. This is where the psalmist is redefining freedom for us. You see, this is a life that is captured by God. This is a life that has been called out by God. But what the psalmist doesn't say is, now that you've made me free, now that you've set me free from sin and I become a child from God, it doesn't say that now I'm going to walk wherever I want and I'm going to do whatever I want. It says, I am going to walk in the wide place. I am going to walk according to your precepts. And so what the psalmist is doing, it's redefining for us freedom. That ultimate freedom that is purchased by God through Christ is not freedom to live however you want and to however you please, whenever you want, whenever you want it. He says, no, being freed by the gospel, being freed by God through Christ actually puts you on a path, a path marked by precepts and statutes and the way of God. Why? Because that is how you were designed to live. You were created for it. Let me give you an example. 
God, when he saves you, when he calls you out as a child, doesn't stand arbitrarily in heaven and go, now that you're mine, I'm the Lord and you're my servant. Let's try out forgiveness. That's it. I want you to forgive people. Try that out. And just do, do as I say because I'm God and you're not. No. God created you and has formed you in his image. And when he sees relationships that are broken, broken at home, broken at work, broken in the community, even broken at church, what does God say? I've created you to live as one. I've created you to live in harmony and unity with one another. So when I give you the command to forgive one another, I know this is just a small example, but when I give you the commandment and the law to forgive, I am giving you that commandment to bring you into the place that you were designed to live. This is what you were created for. You see, freedom, unlike the world, freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Freedom, true freedom, is finding the restrictions that were meant to restrict you. Finding those restrictions that were meant for you. Finding those restrictions that you were designed for. Ultimate freedom is not the absence of restrictions. True freedom is finding the restrictions that you were created for, that you were built for, designed to live under the authority of God. And this is why he creates the statutes and the precepts and the laws, because he loves you. He loves his creation. This is what you were built for. You were built to live like this. You were built to live in a community like this, so that when we see the law, it becomes our utter delight. Because I realize that God is now conforming me into the image and likeness of his son, which was destroyed and broken in the garden, and recreating me in his image and his likeness. This is true freedom, not finding the absence of restrictions, but finding the restrictions that I was created for. And what is the result of this true freedom? This new idea of freedom, not running away from the restrictions of God, but running into the restrictions of God for which I was created for. What, are the, what is the fruit and the result of, of this new freedom? It says in verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. And then in verse 47 and 48, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love, and I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The response and the result of this newfound freedom, freedom as it's defined by God, results in worship of God, with hands lifted up high, saying, I delight in your law, because your law shows me the beauty of God. Your law shows me the perfection of God. The law tells me how I am to live as a child of God, a redeemed child of God. And so the law of God now becomes our delight. It becomes our love. It becomes our passion because it shows me the very character and nature of God that captures my heart forever. In John 14, verse 15 and 16, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. He doesn't say, obey my commandments and I will love you. He says, if you truly love me, obey my commandments. And what is the result? 
Jesus says, I will become more real to you. He says, the, me and the Father will come in even deeper into your life. You see, the commandments of God, the law of God, the statutes and the precepts of God are designed for us once we are saved and redeemed by the one who has fulfilled the law for us. The reason it becomes an utter delight to us is because it allows us to grow closer to God. God says, I will come in even closer to you and will reveal myself even more to you so that you know who I am. So the question is this morning, if obedience and our growing in obedience is coming under the gracious authority of God and transferring authority from yourself and the world and transferring that authority to God himself, the question is how in the world can that happen? A few takeaways this morning. The first thing, plain and simple, in transferring your authority of trust is simply submitting to all of the authority of God. Not just submitting your life to some of the authority of God, but all the authority of God. That you cannot approach the scriptures and the word of God saying, it's really all relevant and up to me what I want to believe and what I don't want to believe. That we cannot pick and choose looking at the word of God and thinking about God himself and say, I choose to believe this about God and I don't choose to believe that about God. If that happens in your life and a failure to submit your life to the full authority and counsel of God, you will never have a God that is personal to you and you will never have a God that is able to change your life. You'll have nothing more than a cardboard cut out of a God that is never personal and never able to enter in and change your life. It's a one-dimensional cardboard cut out of God. It must be a submission to all of the authority of God. The second thing that we need to do is we need to accept the Bible scrutiny. What do I mean by that? The Word of God is not a historical document. It's not 66 books about stuff that happened two, three, five, ten thousand years ago. The word of God, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That means that it has the ability not just to be read, but it has the ability to read you and to convict you and to scrutinize you and that you must be open to it in this life of obedience and living under its authority must be open to its scrutiny. So those times in your life when you are feeling proud and strong, the word of God has the ability to level you for you to remember that you are weak and helpless and utterly dependent upon God. In those times in your life where you are feeling on the opposite end of the spectrum, worthless and, and, and have no value at all, that the word of God reminds you that you were created in the image of God and bought with a price and redeemed as a child, a son or daughter of the king. Must be open to the Bible scrutiny to convict you and to change you and to read you and to interpret you. But lastly, living this life in obedience to God according to his word, the last thing and the most important thing is accepting the finisher of the race. What race? Verse 32 of Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I will run in the ways of your commandments. You see, the psalmist is describing the life of a believer. He's describing this obedient life, this life of holiness and righteousness as a marathon. 
It's this marathon that you've been placed on to run this race according to the commandments of God. But for those that are in Jesus Christ this morning, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 of another one who ran a race. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you are going to run this race, run this marathon of holiness and purity and righteousness, throwing aside all sin and all unrighteousness. But it goes on further. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, we are called to run this race of obedience and holiness and righteousness, but not without one that ran the race for us. You see, Hebrews chapter 12 does not just say that Jesus is the one that started the race. He's also the one that finished the race. He's not only the pioneer of our faith, he is the finisher of our faith. And so we do not run a path that has not been run before. We run the race of obedience, always and only fixing our eyes on the one of perfect obedience, Jesus Christ himself. And in light of Jesus' perfect running of the race, we in response can now run the race that we have been called to run with joy. See, the key to obedience, the key to growing in obedience to God is fixing your eyes on the one of perfect obedience. And what will happen? Verse 32, what does it say? Only when you enlarge my heart. See, for us, that doesn't make any sense. The Hebrews understood and the ancients understood what it meant to have an enlarged heart. It was synonymous with setting your heart free. Anytime they talked about an enlarged heart, it meant that their heart was set free. And when your heart is set free, then you can run the race that you've been called to run. My question for you this morning, has your heart been enlarged? Has your heart been set free? Has your heart been set free from wanting to run a race? Where you are your own authority, how's that working out for you? Does your heart need to be set free from running a race of pleasing people? How's that working out for you? Or has your heart been enlarged this morning? Has your heart been set free? But that man, Jesus Christ, that through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, laid down his life so that you could live forever. In 1842, an Englishman traveled to America for the gold rush. And after he had collected enough gold, he decided to journey all throughout America from coast to coast. And as he was traveling back to the East Coast, he stopped in New Orleans and while in New Orleans, he noticed 
and came across a girl being sold for slavery. And because England years past had abolished slavery, he wanted to see what would the slave trade look like in the American context. And so he walked up to the to the stand and he walked up to the auctioneer and they brought up a girl that was no older than 16 years of age to be auctioned off as a slave. And the men would, were hurling insults at this young girl and bidding on her to be their slave. And this gentleman that had traveled all the way from England, he started to bid as well. And every time there would be a bid, he would try to double the bid. And he would triple the bid. And finally, he made a bid so high that nobody actually believed it and nobody was even willing to match it. He walked away almost paying four times the amount that anybody else was willing to pay for this girl. And as she walked off the auctioneer's block, she spit in his face and she said, I hate you and I have no desire to serve you or have any parts of you. And he said, young lady, I didn't buy you to own you. Young lady, I didn't buy you to use you. I bought you to set you free. And with tears in her eyes, the girl said, is that true? And he says, absolutely, you are free to go. And the girl said in response, if that's the case, then I will go with you anywhere. How about your heart this morning? What will your heart say to the one that has set you free? What will your heart say this morning to the one who sent his son to lay down his life so that you could have life forever. See, the same one that sent his son is the same one that offers that invitation for you today, for your heart to be enlarged and to set, be set free through the sacrifice and the love of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, so that in response, your heart might say, God, if you would do that for me, I will follow you anywhere.